saved. How then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Uh, and then in Revelation 4, we see, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So this is our call, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to the day when Jesus is given the glory and the honor and thanks that's due to him. And so we're going to sing in this next song, Certain of that day, Christ, we will proclaim. Oh, that more would share the prize, salvation in his name. Then greater will the anthem ring, the mighty chorus rising to the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord Almighty reigns. Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Praise the Lord. God. 
Well, if you are able, I'd ask that you would remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 14 to 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And you may be seated. This morning as we continue, we want to remind you that we have the missions course coming up, and it's going to be in September and uh, October uh, on Tuesday evenings. It's a six-week study, and we really want to be focusing on God's heart for the nations and how each one of us plays a role in proclaiming Jesus throughout the whole world. And that role may look different for different believers Every Christian has a role, though, and some will go, some will send, some will support, but there are different ways to participate in God's call for the mission to reach the world, and so we want to invite you to be a part of the missions course and uh, to let you know that there's going to be child care provided, there's going to be free tacos, um, and uh, there's just going to be a great opportunity for everyone to come together, um, see in the handout opportunities for discounts. Uh, on the course, but we would really love to have everyone involved in that. It's six weeks that we're praying that God uses to make an impact on um, our world around us through Grace Church of Orange. And so um, we're excited about that. And with that in mind, we want to remember this morning specifically Nathaniel and Kayla Perry. They are serving in a location that is undisclosed, but uh, that they are acclimating to a new city, a new Um, relationships that are being formed and a new opportunity for ministry. So we want to pray for them specifically this morning. So pray with me. Lord, there is no reason for us to wake up in the morning other than to seek you, to see and to serve and to follow and to pursue the King of glory. And so, God, we come this morning confessing that way too often we go pursuing our own interests. We pursue the desires of our flesh. We pursue the things of this world. And 
God, we know that every moment, every day, every week that passes, that we are not seeking and serving and honoring Jesus with our lives. Those are wasted moments. Those are wasted days. Those are wasted weeks. And God, we ask for your forgiveness for each of those wasted moments. But God, those those moments aren't only wasted. They are acts of rebellion against you. You have created us to proclaim your name, to worship you, to see you as the greatest treasure. And so God, would you instill in us and give us hearts that see Jesus. God, give us hearts that know that he is the greatest treasure and that we will pursue him and proclaim him and make much of him with our lives. God, that is what we desire to do. That's what we desire to be. God, we want to be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock, who hears the words of Jesus and does what he says And God, even as we look at storms in August here in Southern California, God, may we be reminded that Jesus is the rock on whom we stand, even in the midst of life's storms. But God, we want to not just do that in a cliche kind of a way. We want to hear his words and do what he says. And so God, give us hearts that desire to hear, that desire to be obedient, desire to follow Jesus, and give us a will to actually follow through and to do what he says. God, would you you shape our actions and our lives around Jesus and all that we would do and say, let us be a people at grace that make much of him. God, thank you for Nathaniel and Kayla and their desire to, to make Jesus known even in places in this world that are are difficult to do that. God, would you give them um, hearts that are lifted up and encouraged. God, allow them to be a light for Jesus where you have put them. God, would you give them relationships and connections and and, um, opportunity to pour their lives into others? And would you put people in their lives that would be an encouragement to them? God, we thank you for their desire to minister and to serve you in in that way. And God, would you use this time through the songs that we sing and through the word that is preached to conform us to the image of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand and join us once more as we sing, I once was lost in darkest night. I would 
true in our hearts so that we can be the people who experience Psalm 40, where it says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. We ask for help through your word to make you our trust today. We thank you for this time and thank you for everything Mike is going to share. In Jesus' name, amen. In Southern California, we really don't know what to do with a hurricane warning, do we? A tropical storm warning. Uh, don't, we don't take it seriously. I heard all sorts of jokes yesterday about, you know, come on down to the beach, it's awesome, and all of that. It's kind of like how people take scriptural warnings, like Noah's generation and the flood, or Israel throughout the ages, hearing of impending doom due to their stubbornness and ignoring the word of God. Yet God's word stands, continues to warn any who will listen, both present and future consequences, which will come one day without warning, like a fire, not like a hurricane, like a fire. Today we're in part two of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, the word rightly handled, and how Christ expects and enables his church to handle the word of God accurately. Might be the most sobering sermon I've ever preached. It's the passage of scripture that 
rightly assumes because it's from God, there is a correct interpretation and a corresponding expectation of response. And I think we have to ask ourselves some questions. Could it be that you may not be handling God's word as accurately as you think? Might you ignore inadvertently or even purposefully the warnings because you think you already have it right? Could there be any spots where you are a bit off? John Calvin said every theologian is at best 80% right at any given moment. Maybe you keep pushing a, an idea you have. Maybe you keep pushing against the biblical teaching that you find hard to accept for one reason or another. There's a place for wrestling with truth. But what if it turns into a cage fight? And all of this, even as there is a famine in the land for the word rightly handled, that people are professing to proclaim it precisely and purely and few do, that many are trafficking in outright heresy and folly, they're forcing human ideas on scripture, giving unwise quasi-biblical advice, churches trying everything to attract people except preaching the word, they're playing with fire. And putting others in jeopardy. We must cling to faithful words, sound words. It's the theme running in the pastoral letters, specifically 2 Timothy here, Paul's last letter. He's under arrest, he's awaiting execution. His friends were gone. Timothy was still in Ephesus where false teaching was running rampant. Paul wanted to see Timothy once more, and he writes to him. He says, come to Rome. But he also wants to give him some midstream ministry encouragement regarding the word of God. These are Paul's famous last faithful words and the focus on the word of God and how Jesus expects and enables his church to handle the word of God accurately. We are considering three reasons why every church and Christian must handle the word of God accurately. First, it glorifies God. We saw that last week. Secondly, it strengthens the faith of the church. We got midway through that last week. And third, it gives the world what it really needs. So today I'm going to address our acceptance of and approach to the Word of God as it relates to strengthening the faith of the church. And then I'm going to address how it gives the world what it really needs, how others need to know of our security and confidence in Christ, and then see lives live consistent with the truth that we profess. I'm also going to give you the number one way to know if you're a Christian. So if you do struggle with wondering if you're a believer or not, and this passage gives us the number one way to know if you're a Christian. The idea of handling the word accurately, glorifying God, just by a little bit of way of review, uh, you must honor the glory of God if you're a believer. And verse 14 begins this, a solemn charge before Christ. About priority one, verse 15, do your best, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's diligent, persistent, earnest, zealous, 
pursuit. You're wrapped up in it. This idea of expositional study and preaching and living where you read the word, get the meaning, explain the word, exhort with the word, apply the word. It's the idea of exegesis, where the message is from the text. It's not eisegesis, where it's read into the text. We know that Jesus closely linked himself with Scripture. The living word, the incarnate word, gave the all-sufficient Scriptures. We know that creation freely tells us of God's greatness, but the word fully tells us of his character, his will, his ways. That all you know in a saving way, you know from the written word of God. So handling the word of God accurately glorifies God, but it also strengthens the faith of the church. The church is shaped by her teaching, but is also shaped by your words. That every professing believer, whatever they say about God, it matters. We saw in verse 14, you will either with your words strengthen or ruin. Verse 16, you'll lead to godliness or ungodliness. Verse 17, you'll be like a disease or like the cure. Verse 18, you'll stay in the lane of truth or swerve from it. It's an example of Hymenaeus and Philetus, like texting drivers, right? Swerving from the truth. And then verse 18, you'll strengthen faith or upset it. But there are some who upset or corrupt or subvert the faith of some. They don't just hurt themselves, they take others along with them. 2 Peter 3.16 says the ignorant and unstable twist or pervert the scriptures to their own destruction. It's not only they who are destroyed, but also they bring others along. And James 1 tells us, don't be merely hearers of the word, be doers of the word. We, We talked about closing the knowing and doing gap. And that's about where we left off last time, and we'll continue on the idea of strengthening the faith of the church with this idea, the hinge on which strengthening the faith of the church swings is our acceptance of and approach to the Word of God. Our acceptance of the Word of God first, and then our approach to the Word of God. So our acceptance of the Word of God it, it, it tells us, you know, reject the, the false words, but you, you need to, to, to handle rightly the word of truth. That you come and approach the word of God and you say, I am going to accept the word of God and line up with what the word says about itself. It's internal testimony. And the very first thing it says about itself is it is true. Jesus said, John 17, 17, your word is truth. It's inspired 2 Timothy 3.16, Theopneustos, literally breathed out from the mouth of God. It is inerrant. It is perfect. It is infallible. It won't lead you astray. It's eternal. It stands forever. It is powerful. It is able to save and to sanctify. It is authoritative. I have no authority except for the word of God. I have not the authority to to bind your conscience. I cannot make you do something. But authoritative word of God must be obeyed. And disobeying or denying any aspect of the word of God means you are disobeying God. And you're making a choice. But at the very same time, people have said we have progressed beyond this. That we have progressed beyond this all-sufficient word. And scripture says otherwise, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, that you may learn not to go beyond what was written. That should be a, a, 
a wake-up call to every Christian. Don't go beyond what was written. That you focus on Jesus and his word above all else. You trust the Bible. You do so because God says to do so. Psalm 138, verse 2. I love this verse. It says of God, it says, God, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That when we, see, when we speak of the name of God, we speak of who he is and what he does. We're not talking about putting a, a flat name on a billboard. We're talking about who God is and what he does. And he has exalted above all things who he is, what he does, and what he has said. He has exalted above all things his name and his word. This is what the historic church has held. Anyone who's pressing new meanings into the the word of God are on shaky ground, and the fault lines are are hard to to see. They're, They're hard to notice at times. And this is why verse 14 says, remind them. Remind them, charge them before God not to to strive about words, not to argue and human reasoning and subverting the word of God and be foolish and futile. Verse 14 is the first of three warnings to avoid useless words. Verse 14, verse 16, verse 23. Why? Because it ruins the hearers. It overturns and overthrows. And the other other time in, in, in the New Testament that this idea of ruining the hearers, ruin, is in 2 Peter 2.6, speaking of the, the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction. And when people replace truth with lies, there is catastrophe. Think about it. The common advice. Listen to your heart. Follow your heart. You deserve it. That has been ruinous. It has ended more marriages. It's fostered more addictions, it's led to more sin, it's agreed with more gossip, it's fed more gluttony, it's ruined more fellowship than you can imagine. They say that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Well, a deceived mind is the devil's kitchen, cooking up all sorts of sordid sins. It's going to be Christ's authority and lordship or yours. You decide. You know, Satan did not tempt Adam and Eve to lie, cheat, and steal. He tempted them to question the word of God. Sometimes with our beliefs, it's as if people build a scaffolding. You know, put it up against a a building, a scaffolding, maybe to paint or clean windows, but they, they build a scaffolding or they receive one and it gives them some measure of security that they're right and they have these ideas and they think they have it right, but the scaffolding isn't the building. And it can't hold up when things get stormy or tough. Instead of mishandling the word or building our own scaffolding, If we want to glorify God, if we want to strengthen the faith of the church, we need to humbly and boldly accept the teaching of the word that deepens us and reject human ideas that ruin us. Every Christian I know doesn't go into it and say, you know, I love God and his word, but I'm I'm going to, I'm going to on purpose 
deny what the Bible teaches. Sometimes they end up doing it because they don't know what the Bible teaches, or sometimes they struggle with what the Bible teaches. They find it hard to accept it. Sometimes it's out of fear. Sometimes it's scary to accept a doctrine you're confused about or convinced is otherwise. I mean, it hits to the heart of how you understand how God operates. That you love the Lord God, you, you want to know his word, and, and you don't want to handle it inaccurately, but sometimes you hold on to things that you've held on to for a long time that aren't accurate with the word. Sometimes it's pride, where you know better than God. And you stubbornly hold to what you believe, and you overvalue yourself over God. But we know that change in a Christian's life comes by the Spirit of God through the word of God, and we need to willingly put ourselves under God's authority and the authority of the word and trust the shepherding of, 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 of godly, humble leaders and follow Christ's authority and his lordship and not ours. There are times when people will undermine scripture. They'll do so bringing questions and challenges but there are so many Christians that genuinely struggle to understand something who come sincerely with their questions and their doubts. We all do that. We all through the years come with our questions and our doubts. There are so many things that at one point in my life I believed and I was corrected by the word of God and now I believe what the word says. If you genuinely struggle with the questions, we're with you. We're struggling with you. We'll point you to truth. We'll pray that God helps you understand the word of God. If you're struggling with a doctrine, you're not necessarily you know, swerving from the truth. But that is quite different from the person that actively undermines the word of God, where they look to sow seeds of doubt and confusion. There's some doctrines that are difficult to grasp. We know that. Sometimes people wrap their minds around something and they get wrapped around a pole, just the wrong idea. And sometimes people struggle to, to wrap their minds around some things clearly taught in Scripture. I think of the doctrine of predestination and election. I think of why God allows evil. I think of all these kind of things. I think of the false view that's now widely accepted regarding women in the church, saying that they should be pastors and elders and preach and lead churches and all of that. If you will remember, if you can remember back, wayward liberal churches were doing that in the 60s and 70s. Now you have Rick Warren in the woods and Saddleback loving it. And before them, a host of others that were twisting scripture. I mean, we all struggle at some level to understand some things in the word of God. And what I would say is this, if you're struggling with an accurate teaching of the word of God. And because God intended to say what he said and it's not up for grabs, here's your opportunity to pray for a soft heart, a tender heart, a pliable heart, a yielded heart to God and to submit to something that may not make sense to you yet. Like you shouldn't wait for something to make sense to believe it. Believe because God says it. It makes sense to a lot of other people. 
But when you do that, what I find is God just grants deeper understanding as greater understanding, and he is glorified. You're strengthening the faith of the church. We'll be shaped by our acceptance of the word when we line up with what the Bible says, but also our approach to the word, our approach to it, how we actually would study it, how we would receive it and and and. What you want to do is, is handle the word like Jesus and the apostles did. Carefully in context. Where you read it, you explain it, you get to the meaning, you explain the meaning in context, then you exhort and apply it. Where you're under the word of God because you're under God's authority. The church is called the pillar and support of the truth. We're to rightly handle it. It literally means we're to rightly handle it. Uh, we don't want to cave in. We don't want to wander away from the truth. You don't want to do that. An obvious mark of a healthy church is expositional preaching. Where you read, you get to the meaning, you explain, apply, and live it. Which, by the way, does not guarantee health. But without it, you'll be unhealthy. You'll be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Or your imagination. I mean, if, you're, if we're all just about saying nice things into people's ears to please their ears, it robs them of the opportunity to hear the word of God shielded from scripture which saves and sanctifies. We become enslaved to man's ideas, not God's. Paul warned about it in Acts 20 when he spoke to the Ephesian elders. He said, after I depart, savage wolves will come in from among your own selves and will draw away the disciples after them. It goes like this, and we've seen it so many times. First, we overlook evil. Then we allow evil. Then we legalize evil. Then we promote evil. Then we celebrate evil. Then we persecute those who still call it evil. Isaiah 5.20 said, Woe to them who call evil good and good evil. And here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 9, Paul, who is chained as a prisoner unjustly, chained to a guard, he said, The word of God is not bound. The word of God is not imprisoned to man. It's not bound by our ideas. It's not bound by our mind. It is free. You have to ask the question, what did God say? What did he intend to communicate? And then ask this question, how may we have misunderstood or misinterpreted or mangled or mishandled the message? Is there room to ask that question in your heart? Are you willing to have that question be asked? That you would ask, well, which is the right way to take this and which is the wrong way to take this and if I've been holding the wrong way, will I be repentant? I tell people a lot, you know, you know how you should read the Bible? You should read the Bible like a, a five-year-old reads the Bible or like a fifth grader reads the Bible. What do I mean by that? They read it and they believe it. 
And then you come to things that are hard to understand and how can you have confidence a Bible interpretation is the correct one? Well, you go to the words, you go to the grammar, you go to the context, the intent, the response that agrees with the intent. And, and what you'll find is if you've come up with something new or something relatively new, you're probably wrong. But if you come up with something that the church has historically held since it was birthed, you're probably right. The main verse in this passage, verse 15, do, yourself, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Again, not do your best like try hard and if you fail, that's okay, but be diligent and zealous about it. A worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. That verse and the surrounding verses expects adjustment. It expects recalibration in your life and your heart and in the church as needed. It expects a reception of that and then a repentance for sin, even of mishandling or maligning the word of God or even giving ideas without proof. How many times do we just throw out a Bible verse? Not even thinking, that did, did I give that accurately in context to the situation that I just applied it? You wanna handle the word of God accurately we're not always going to agree with each other, but we sure want to agree with the word. We don't want to rely on our own minds. We want to rely on the mind of Christ, which is the inerrant word of God. I'm going to preach the word in season and out of season, no matter if someone will listen or not. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying uh, preaching the word fixes everything. Uh, I mean, what if a plumber came to you and threw tools and parts at you and said, I fixed your toilet? Well, what if a, uh, a mechanic came to you and threw tools and, and parts at you and said, I fixed your car? That doesn't work, right? You need to have a process. So we say the word of God does the work. If, if, if anything happens, the, it's because the spirit of God used the word. But what we're, what we're saying when we say that is that the word, of, the, the word did the work. What we're saying is the spirit of God used the word of God rightly handled in the context of relationships that we equip the saints by praying and preaching in relationship with people. And Acts 6, 4 illustrates that nicely. The word does the work. The spirit uses the word rightly handled in the context of relationships. I was at a wedding recently and I sat next to a chiropractor. First time I met this person. But during the meal, I had a better posture than usual. I once had a uh, physical therapist friend at my former church where when I would stand in the pulpit, I would see him over here off to the side, and as soon as I saw him, I would stand up straighter. He would give me the little thumbs up, you know? <laughs> I say that because there's something about being around people doing the right thing that helps you do the right thing, where you say, I want to apply the word of God in the proper working of the body of Christ. I want to heal. I don't want to hurt that the, the word meets real brokenness, that, that the body of Christ comes alongside people with the word in their pain. There's, there's no better ointment for the soul, no, no better salve for the soul. When you come with the word of God, you say, I care about you, I wanna help you, I will walk with you. Handling the word of God accurately glorifies God and strengthens the faith of the church. 
It also, and this is going to be the third point here, it gives the world what it really needs. This is how you meet the real need of the world. People all the time are trying to guess the answer to that. But it, the, the real need of the world gets met by the word of God rightly handled. And it's like this. You love the truth and you give the truth lovingly. And it won't be because you're you know, so magnetic that they come to faith in Christ or they agree with the word of God. It will be because the spirit of God did the work. But if you are doing it lovingly, you won't be you know, pulling the rug out from underneath the work you're trying to do. See, this is why others need to know of our security in Christ, our assurance in Christ. And they need to see lives lived consistently with the gospel. The gospel that we profess. Look with me at verse 19. It says this, but God's firm foundation stands. Right after it says they are upsetting the faith of some. And lest you be fearful, lest you be worried about it, Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands. His firm foundation. Think of a foundation on a house. You think, you know, uh, if you build a house with the wrong kind of uh, faulty cement, it's going to crumble. We've, we've seen cement work crumble before. We've seen foundations crumble. But God's firm foundation is unchanging, you know. It's not like the mattress that you bought that didn't last. He has determined something. It is right, true, holy, and just. He has set his foundation. The church built on the foundation of Christ Jesus and his apostles. The word of God. The church having the truth, even as he said to Timothy, the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. That the church and the truth stands even though uh, the waywardness of its members sometimes mess up the picture. That sometimes in, in, in life and in the church around the world, error is taught and passed on. And people's faith is being seriously undermined. But we know the true church with the truth will prevail, never be defeated, never be destroyed, however harassed by poisonous ideas. The church will survive triumphant because Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. It is immovable. It is unchanging. It is secure. It is eternal. I was thinking this week of the song, How Firm the Foundation. How firm a foundation, O saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? You who to the Savior for refuge have fled. God has a firm foundation because he laid the foundation. God's eternal intent before time began. Look at verse 19. What does it say? It says the foundation has a seal. It bears a seal, a seal of authenticity. In the Bible, a seal is one of authenticity and security and ownership. The seal of ownership and authenticity and security. It's the distinguishing mark of the foundation. You know, you're out in the country or you're, you're, you're in a city and you go by an old, you know, concrete bridge and oftentimes it will be stamped in there the year it was made and by whom, right? Well, this is the foundation that's firm and the letters are etched in significantly. It's not graffiti. It's fixed words. 
and it's the foundation sealed with an inscription. And there are two things. It says, the Lord knows those who are his. There's a quote. And another quote, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from iniquity. So there's the objective fact of God's knowledge of his chosen elect and the imperative call to holiness. We'll break those down one one after another. First, the Lord knows those who are his. It speaks of our security in Christ. Lest you be afraid. And by the way, this is not God knows about. You know, we always say, oh, I know that, and you don't know hardly anything, right? Well, I I found two facts out. Now I know about it. No, it's not that he knows about it. It's he knows because he made and sustains the church of those who belong to him. And this is a quote. The Lord knows those who are his is a quote from Numbers chapter 16, verse 4. It's speaking of Korah's, it's in the context of Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron and ultimately God with 249 co-conspirators who didn't like how they were leading. They were claiming that God was speaking through them too. They uh, usurped God's authority. They went too far. They set themselves above God and his word and his people and the result was that fire fell from heaven and consumed all 250. Even as the writer of Hebrews says, we should be reverent because our God is a consuming fire. And this, this quote, the Lord knows those who are his, from Numbers 16.4, here's the, exa- the whole verse. Numbers 16.4, to Korah and his company, to all of them, in the morning the Lord will show who is his, who is holy. He will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. This is referring to the sovereignty of God. That he knows, he chose, he decreed before the foundation of the world to save those who are his. Now this idea is heavy in Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to be back in Ephesians on September 10. So I would encourage you, go back. Before September 10, go back. Listen uh, to some of the Ephesians 1 sermons. It's the idea of opening the eyes of the heart. It's the idea of opening your eyes and and giving you new life. It's the idea of regeneration. It's the idea of even Acts 16, Lydia, where God opened her heart to believe the message. That God makes you willing to believe and then willing to even be persecuted for the name of Jesus. What does God say over and over in Scripture? I am with you. I will never leave you. I will be with you. He gives his assured promised presence. And he never left his people without a word. He didn't leave them to their own devices. The foundation is sealed with this inscription. The objective fact of God's knowledge of his chosen elect. The mark of God's ownership of believers which shows the security of the believer. The Lord knows those who are his. You know how I say OGK? Only God knows? I get it from that. The Lord knows those who are his. But there is also, in this verse, an imperative call to holiness. And it shows our confidence in Christ, the assurance we have in Christ. Verse 19 then goes on to say another quote. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The first quotation was from Numbers 16.4. The second, while not an exact Old Testament quotation, is probably also related to Korah's rebellion uh, coming from Numbers 
16, verse 26, which says this. He spoke to the congregation saying, depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away with all their sins. Depart from iniquity. It suggests leaving something that, that you're already at. And, and the idea is, is of repentance. It's a call to pursue holiness, as the writer of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 1, let me read you some verses in 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is going to make you holy, Christian, and it will be painful. But it says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, literally choose, with fear throughout the time of your exile, your life here on earth, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, peri not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So abstaining from evil is that overall mark of being a true believer known by God. In Galatians 4.9, it says, Now that you have, I like how Peter put, uh, Paul put this, Now that you have come to know God, rather to be known by him. The idea is that God knows those who are his. And if you say you're a Christian, there's going to be a mark of whether you really are a believer. And it's not going to be you walking around telling everyone, I'm a Christian. It's not. It's going to be if you're abstaining from wickedness. Someone might ask, what does that say about my profession of faith if I keep falling back into sinful actions and attitudes? What is departing from iniquity? Now, some people wrongly say that if you're a Christian, you will no longer sin. That is not taught in the Bible. That's a setup for a crash and burn. But on the other end of the spectrum, others say, well, it, ma it doesn't matter what you do at all because you're under grace. Well, that's more garbage to clutter your mind. Here's a more accurate way. What does it mean to depart from iniquity? It means this. If you're a Christian, you don't want to sin anymore. And when you do sin, you repent of it. Departing from iniquity. That a growing Christian has an increasing appetite for the good things of God, for the word of God, and a very evident repulsion for the badness of sin. And the Lord alone knows who truly belong to him and who are false. And we can only recognize those who belong to Jesus by their life. So we depart from unrighteousness. Even depart from mishandling or maligning the word of God and stay away from those who are doing violence to the scriptures. Like cleanse yourself, as this passage goes on to say, just cleanse yourself from what defiles. Because some look healthy, but they're not. Like ask yourself the question, is my life marked 
by departing from sin, going away from it, repenting of it. That's how you know if you're a real believer. OGK, only God knows. But the only way you and I will know is if you depart from evil. It's the genuineness of our lives showing through. Are we believers to the core? Like when I pick up a piece of raw garlic and I slice it, garlic all the way through. Or a piece of cheese and you're cutting it for a board, cheese all the way through. Or eating a nectarine, nectarine all the way through. And you want to be a believer to the core and depart from iniquity, call sin, sin. And, 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 call, and call out what you struggle with and traffic in self-denial, not blindness, knowing that the Spirit of God gives repentance and prompts confession. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture, all Scripture, Old and New Testament, all Scripture, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, Bingo, correction. That those willing to be corrected by the word of God can correct those who oppose the word of God. That you can receive correction. It's a good mark. Could it be? Could it be that we are not giving the word of God to the world because we're not accepting the word we need? I was in Tennessee two Sundays ago. I was worshiping at my in-law's church. I'm good friends with the pastor. And a family member said to me, came up to me after the sermon, after hearing what the pastor said and what he preached. It's a big church, great church. It's a, it's a healthy church. And they said, isn't it interesting? You can say things in Tennessee and people don't get upset like they do in California. Huh. We got to guard our words, even about what we hear in the word of God. There was a man named Gregory of Nazianus, lived from 330 to 389. He was called Gregory the Theologian. He was fourth century Archbishop of Constantinople. And the most significant theological contribution he made was about uh, defending the doctrine of the Trinity and the nature of the Holy Spirit. But he said this, could it be that nothing else matters to you, but your tongue must always rule you you cannot hold back words once conceived. They must be delivered. Reminds me of Rachel Lynn and Anne of Green Gables. You know I pride myself in speaking my own mind, Marilla. Self-justification destroys departing from evil. What you and I need is for the word of God to defrost our hearts, to melt them, to break your hard, stoning heart, to make it pliable, to tenderize the toughness, to cleanse you from the deathly, contagious, worldly disease and renew your mind to think clearly. Everyone's a theologian because everyone has thoughts of God that they give to others. So would you do me a favor today? Would you submit yourself to wise counsel? Would you ask someone trusted in your life who knows the word of God and knows you where you might be off in any way. Are you open to being corrected? Number one way you can know if someone is handling the word of God inaccurately is if they're unteachable. Would you let the word of God and wise friends 
help you be more accurate with the word of God and therefore more helpful to the world? When you ask these questions, you may hear something uncomfortable. You may be encouraged, you may be surprised, but will you accept it? Will you adjust accordingly? You might hear that you're a bit too strong in your opinions. I hear that quite often. You might hear that you seldom ask anyone for advice. You might hear that you're a bit annoying in the way that you talk, that you talk too softly or too loudly. My family's always telling me I talk too loudly all the time. You may hear that you are who they think of when they think of a good example of bringing the word accurately with a healthy relational component. But whatever you hear, thank the person, offer it to God, and take it to heart. Humbly trust God for life changed by the Spirit of God through the Scriptures in relationship. The Word transforms you from one image of glory to the other, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us. But we are living in a time right now where the Bible says so doesn't mean much to people. It better mean a lot to us. If you love Jesus, he said it, you will obey his word. He doesn't mince words. He wasn't joking around. He meant it. It should be a wake-up call because it really does frame and, and drive our engagement with the world, how you engage the world. Now, we have the truth the world needs, but we give something less. We give moralism. We give judgment. We give condemnation. Or we celebrate and condone or ignore issues or, you know, go along to get along. We need to be bold to speak the word rightly and lovingly engage. Like, it is very important that your evangelism is accurate biblically. Even, even the way you do it, there's a debate swirling all the time among Christians. Instead of going out and sharing their faith, they want to talk about how a believer ought to share their faith. And some will say, well, it has to be really humble and gentle and soft in the approach. Don't blow them out of the water. Others are like, storm the gates of hell. You know, be as bold as possible. Take no prisoners. This is war. And what you need to do is be sensitive to God and people and do what seems best in the moment, learn from fellow believers, and don't hold back the truth from those who need it. You want to find a place of redemptive interaction. If you have the soft approach, that's your personality, then make sure you just don't give suggestions. Don't forget to give the gospel. If you have the tougher stance, don't bring the word of God as a weapon or a battering ram or a baseball bat. Just bring a first aid kit. Be like a rescue worker. Be like a triage unit. Bring your friends. Bring tools. Bring helpful answers. Don't give them what they want. Give them what they need. Just persistently preach the word. This church, Grace Church, must be loving truth and then giving the truth lovingly. Love the truth. Live the truth. You know, get the gospel out to the ends of the earth. Don't shape it to fit the world. Tell the truth. No wishy-washy, you know, no whining, no whimpering, no world-pleasing weaklings. You know, well, no, you know what we need? We need an army of word-preaching, winsome warriors. Seriously. Kindness doesn't save anybody, but harshness pushes people away. Uh, the truth will attract the chosen and repel the perishing. And by the way, even if you get in the way, 
It isn't your magnetic personality drawing them to Christ. You run the risk of them trusting you and not Jesus if it is. You don't see biblical examples, by the way, that that person was so kind, I decided to come to Jesus. What you see is people living you know, uh, truthful lives, giving the word without apology in the context of kindness. The cruelty is anti-gospel. But here's the thing, and, and really, people go after and fall prey to many ruinous ideas. In 1935, Adolf Hitler, at a rally, a part of Nazi efforts to indoctrinate youth, said this, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. What a, oh, what a chilling reminder for people in every time. You know, they get captivated by ideas of those exerting the most influence, either for good or evil. It's like, parents, teach your kids the word of God. Commit to a church that is accurately preaching the word. Amy Carmichael once said, children should not be exposed to conflicting teachings. Once the roots have taken hold, let the wind blow as it will. It will only cause the roots to take a firmer grip. The written word of God, applied by the spirit of God, is the most powerful force on earth. You'd be corrected by the word, not correcting the word, if you want to use that word. The world will be given what it really needs when Christians stop trying to correct Christ. No more at the movies sermon series silliness, looking at the world and seeing ourselves. No, see Christ at the cross sacrifice. You look in the mirror of the word of God, you see Jesus victorious over sin and death and hell and Satan. No, we don't need entertainment. We, we need edification. We, we don't need fun and games. We need evangelism. We don't need to coddle sin. We need sanctification. This is what the world needs. The world needs Christians to handle the word of God accurately, to serve it up faithfully, to engage relationally. And, and just know, Christian, you are handling the sharp scalpel of the word of God. It, it, it takes like, it's like surgery. And you don't want your surgeon like brandishing a, 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 a scalpel <laughs> all over the place. You handle it with care. This is why pastoral counseling, this is why biblical counseling and everyone who does it must be rooted strongly in the solid handling of the word of God. I have an opinion. I might not be right, but I have an opinion and I'm strong about it. I think the worst and most socially accepted crime in the world is twisting scripture and handling it inaccurately. Why? Because it is a crime against a holy God and has potential to destroy a human soul. God says you better be careful. His word is like fire or a sledgehammer smashing stones. Don't handle it shamefully. Do the interpretation accurate, in context, according to authorial intent, what God meant to say, what response he enables and expects. This fire. And fire can be amazingly helpful or if handled rightly or devastatingly ruinous if disrespected. I think that anyone who's peddling false ideas about God are spiritual arsonists. I think they're social terrorists. I think they're attacking humanity and masquerading as helpers. And God doesn't take it lightly. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. I want to point you today to be more dependent upon Jesus and the word of God. Don't make it say what you, what, what you want it to say. Don't take one verse out of context. 
Strive for an accurate meaning, then live it with all your might. And men, do this first at home. Reflect on the word, get a renewed mind, reflexive in the word, muscle memory in the word, senses trained to discern good and evil, because Christ expects it, and he enables it, that his church to handle the word of God accurately. It will necessitate soul-searching on your part and my part, and decisive action. A couple weeks ago, those fires in Maui, we know so many people who live there, they're going there, one of our elders, Alan Weisberger, is going there to help, just probably this week, I think, right? The people in Maui were caught off guard by the fires. They had this state-of-the-art early warning system, but it appears, it appears the sirens didn't go off. There's no reason that any Christian should be, should be caught off guard even by the judgment to come. Many, many will be caught off guard that day, will be unaware. What will Jesus say? I never knew you. Depart from me. You were trusting in yourself. Just don't succumb to the temptation to wrongly handle the word of God. It was the temptation from the garden. Adam and Eve not rightly handling the word of God. Satan mangled the word and they accepted the error. I'm so thankful for the wilderness temptation where Jesus rightly handled the word, where Satan was was twisting the word and Jesus corrected him. Sovereign Savior, sufficient word that overcomes, guiding his people by his spirit, through his word, the faithful proclamation by faithful servants, pointing over and over and over again to the words of scripture given by God, the means by which truth is conveyed, but the souls are saved, lives are transformed. I have no idea what God will do today. OGK, only God knows, but what I do know is we are called to handle the word of God accurately. And we are to live a holy life, depart from evil, help others. That's what I know. And that's what we must do. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us your word and and that you haven't left us alone and that you're here with us all the time and that handling the word, your word, accurately glorifies you and it strengthens your church and it really does give the world what what it really needs. Lord, use us for your glory as we go today that we would be honoring to you in everything we do. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand and join us? We close singing, Give Me Jesus.
few announcements before we go. We have more baptisms today. We've been baptizing a lot of people this summer. Six more right after third service today. You'll hear testimonies and see them be baptized. Missions course is coming up. I know I've been pretty strong about it. Uh, I don't want to force anybody to go, but I really want everyone to go. Uh, So you make your own choices on that. Uh, Adventure Club, Grace Orange Academy, Women's Ministry, Men's Ministry, all of these things coming up. Uh, Simon Goodyear, who's leading our Cambodia team, asked me specifically if you would be praying. First of all, if if you're going to go, there's still time to join the team as we as we uh, get the team together, but be praying for soft hearts for the students that are going to be coming to the camp that they'll be putting on, and just pray for the team as it's getting formulated and as we send them uh, to serve the Lord in October. Well, let's pray together now as we close. I'm going to pray the words of Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Lord God, you are the God of peace. You brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of your eternal covenant. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us with everything good that we may do your will, that you would work in us what is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me 